Hi everyone, welcome to the Liberal Arts Endeavor, a podcast by Michigan State University's College of Arts and Letters. Here, we're dedicated to driving a continued conversation about the importance of public presence in an online space. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. This season, we're refocusing on the value of humanist perspective in the digital age and slowing down a bit to foster a culture of care and listening. On each new episode, we follow Chris Long, Dean of the College of Arts and Letters, as he takes us somewhere new to meet arts and letters students and faculty where they work. Today's episode features Sean Lowen, a professor in the Second Language Studies program at Michigan State University. He and the Dean met each other at Ellison Brewing Company here in East Lansing. Here's Sean and Chris. So welcome, Sean Lowen, to the Liberal Arts Endeavor. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, let's talk a little bit about where we, in fact, are. So this is, this is we, we have talked a lot about what meeting faculty, where they work, in the, in the spaces they work. And here we are at Ellison Brewing Company. Excellent. Um, because it's one of the places where I work. Um, yeah, I, I, I suppose you want to know why, yeah. right? Well, I mean, I think one reason is the beer is good. The beer, the beer is good. Um, no, so I found I wanted to get away from campus a little bit in the afternoons, but like 3.30, 4 o'clock, it's too late for me to have coffee, so I can't go to Big B or someplace to get coffee, and had a meeting here once, and I thought, you know, they've got beer, I can come and sit, and it's relatively quiet, and just get some work done, so, and it's on the way home, so, um, I don't know, it's become kind of a a habit over the last, um, I guess I started last semester, so. Okay. So you've been doing it for the last semester or so? Yeah, yeah. yeah so. And you bring your computer in, books, yep. all that kind of yep. just, just set up? set up and use the internet and, you know, I mean, I don't do, I don't do my um, heavy thinking and writing, you know, but deal with emails and process stuff and just, yeah. So it's a nice, it's a great environment to sit and work. Yeah, it's, it's, so. it's great. And here. the beer's not bad either. Exactly. So, <laughs> so where, where, when do you do your, you know, deep thinking? Your, is it, are you a morning person? I am you? a morning person, yeah. yeah. So my best writing time is probably between 5 and 10 in the morning. Okay. So, and if I have deadlines, I'll get up like 4 and write for a couple of hours. And then I'm pretty sure, pretty yeah. much shot. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, right. So, um, yeah. So that's my kind of rhythm. That's good. So. Yeah, I'm a morning person too, and I mm-hmm. think that if you can get some good hours or even just yeah. parts of hours, yeah. in, you feel better about the whole day. Exactly. And when the kids were at home, you know, once they got up, you just you, you know all bets were off. Right. So to grab a couple hours in the morning to sit and think, and so um, that's that's my my process. Great. great. So we. I was looking at your website. So one mm-hmm. of the things we talk a little bit about on the podcast is online scholarly presence. And first of all, you've got a beautiful <laughs> site. Do you, now, are you a photographer? Do you take pictures? Um, I'm not. Not really. No. It's not um, a hobby of yours. Not, well, I do a little bit of photography, but not not much. Okay. I just have a point and shoot. But okay. yeah. Well, so. there's some good pictures. There's a couple of great pictures of you on, on, on the site. Thank you. Yes. So one of the things we, uh, you know, I always want to ask about is how are you thinking about your website? I see you've, you've got pretty much, uh, you know, this is who I am. Here's my scholarship. You've got a, a little bit of a blog space on there. So maybe you mm. can talk a little bit about how you're using that space. Sure. Um, so I developed the website with... Daniel Trago's help um, a couple of years ago, and I 
sort of put everything up and had a little bit of momentum, but I found it's not something I really like to keep up with. It's, I'd always rather be doing something else. I'm not somebody who just enjoys putting, you know, stuff on the, on my website, but two things. One, I knew I was meeting with you. <laughs> That's a good update. So, so I updated it, but I'm also doing the Digital Fellows uh, program okay. for the next two months. Okay. And so I've been thinking about uh, my digital presence and um, so what I, um, so I always get frustrated when I go to people's websites, to other academics' websites, and they don't have like their their um, most recent list of publications because I'm trying to find a you know, reference or something. So I thought I better practice what I preach or what I, you know, whatever. And um, so trying to keep that updated. And the one thing that I'm hoping to do, especially with the Digital Fellows uh, program, is I'd like there to be more of a blog aspect to it where, for example, just today, just about half an hour before I came here, in my inbox, I got an email from Wiley Publishing saying that one of the publications that I was a co-author of was one of the top-sided publications for 2018-2019. Great, congratulations. So, thank you. So that's something I'd like to put on the website as a blog, but I don't quite know how to do that. So that's one of the directions I'd like to take it in. So, so the fellowship, what is, what's involved with that in the, in the fellows program? So we meet once a week uh, for two months. And um, I think it's sponsored by Cal, but yep. there are people from all over the university. Yep. And it's just to take people, I think, from wherever they're at. And some people are virtually, have virtually no sort of social media presence or, you know, um, to others who have maybe, like myself, have a little bit more, but still aren't using it in the way that we, we're, we're not optimizing it right. or, or that. So, yeah, it's uh, Thursdays uh, from 12 to 1 for an hour, yeah. and then we get a little bit of homework and just, uh, so it's a good, it's a good um, uh, reason to get back to it and, right. and keep it up to date. Yeah, I think one of the things that's helpful with a program like that is just even if you have a set time to do the updates that you're mm -hmm. talking about. Yeah. And to talk to other people who are thinking about using their site in certain kinds of ways. Yeah. Have you found that it opens up opportunities for you when people find you online or when you've been, have you been, have you been invited to things because of it? Um, I'm not aware of any opportunities that have come through my digital presence. Um, but one of the things that I am aware of is, so, you know, having become a full professor recently and just aware of that there might be, like, applications that I'm putting in for or that other people are putting in on my behalf. Right. And so the funding company, for example, might Google, you know, and look at, Google me and look at my... Um, digital presence and I want it to be representative of who I am as a scholar. So that's another reason to keep it. I think as your profile grows in the field, it's more important to to have a good, for me it's website, but also they're talking about Instagram and Twitter yeah. and all of those things as well. Are so. you doing any of that stuff or you're just... Not website. really, just the website. I tried Twitter and I just thought, who has time for this? Yeah. And I thought, well, it's my kids who sit in um, their classes and look at Twitter all the time. It just seemed like an overwhelming flood of information. So and now all my kids are doing Instagram and, it's not even, <laughs> and TikTok and it's just, everything's evolving. But yeah. I mean, one of the things that has been interesting for me, because I follow a lot of scholars on Twitter, mm -hmm. has been to see, to be able to keep up with some of the scholarly conversations, uh -huh. and especially when people are using it to facilitate those conversations. Mm -hmm. So w what we're really looking at trying to do in the college is 
have a structure like what you have, which is you would curate your own website, mm -hmm. but then the vision would be for that to feed into your faculty activity report mm -hmm. so that you wouldn't have to do that separately. Right. And then that would be something that would also be used for the promotion, tenure, salary increases process as well. Mm -hmm. So the idea would be curate your space the way you want it mm -hmm. and have that populate the you know activity reports right. that we have that would be great that's the vision we'll see i've been pushing for that vision for probably 15 years now so we're, <laughs> we're getting ever so slightly closer but i think people are now more more seeing it because i i think there's everybody updates their cv right and it just sits right. locally on their computer right so if we can get that out in the public more, share your work potentially more, right. people could discover you in a, in a more robust way. Right. It makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about your work. Tell me how you got into, like what got you into second language acquisition? So when I was in junior high, okay, in, I grew up in southwest Kansas. All right. Um, and my parents decided that I wasn't really being challenged in school. So they uh, signed me up for Spanish lessons um, with, uh, there was a missionary who had come back and was living in our hometown. And so they um, signed me up for Spanish lessons and I discovered that I loved it. Mm -hmm. So I studied Spanish, uh, took private, took lessons and then in school, uh, took Spanish and just found out that I really loved languages and getting access to foreign languages in southwestern Kansas in you know what the 70s and 80s wasn't exactly easy um, but yeah I just found that language fascinated me and so I sort of evolved I realized you couldn't really make a um, a living learning languages, but you could maybe make a living teaching languages mm -hmm. so I um, taught English for a little while and that sort of then led into, I've always, you know, enjoyed studying and, and so um, did an undergrad degree in, in English Lit okay. and then a Master's in Linguistics and my wife pushed me, she's like, well, you should do a PhD, you know, like a five-year program where you get sort of your master's along the way and I said, well, if you're doing a PhD, you're really positioning yourself for research in academia and the whole publish and perish thing and I wasn't sure I wanted to do that. But when I did my master's at Temple University, um, I realized that I loved research. Okay. Everybody, all the all my classmates would complain about the research projects that we had to do in class, and I just loved them. Um, so, so I went on and did a PhD. Um, yeah. So, so you did your master's degree at Temple? Yes. Okay. So Philadelphia. I'm from Philadelphia. Yes, Philadelphia. So yeah. I'm a huge fan of Temple. Uh -huh. so that's good. Yeah. And then, but then you did your PhD in Auckland. Is yes. That right? So. Um, there was a um, internationally renowned applied linguist, Rod Ellis, um, at Temple University when I started, well, when I was doing my master's and I took a couple of classes with him and then I started my PhD there with him and about halfway through he went to the University of Auckland and um, was starting a program there and I followed him there. Okay. So <laughs> and, he was starting a brand new program? Um, yes. Yeah. And uh, I worked really well with him, and he was a, he is a great, um, you know, one of the leading scholars in our field. And so um, I had finished, the, they have the British system there, so you don't really do coursework. So I kind of had to start all over again, oh, no. but um, it was a great opportunity. He really uh, developed uh, a great program there, and there was some synergy with the, the, the research area. 
And so I finished my degree there and then got a position as a equivalent of an assistant professor there for a few years. And it was a really great, I mean, New Zealand's a great place to, to live. Yeah. Um, and your whole family moved down, your wife yeah, moved yeah. with you there for yeah, the whole time? There. Yeah, we moved there. We lived there for about seven and a half years. Okay. So that was a great time. Yeah. And um, it was a bit sad to come back to the U.S. I won't deny that. Okay. But um, landed a great position at MSU and have been here since then. So tell me a little bit about the area within second language acquisition that you work in. What's your focus? So I look especially at instructed second language acquisition and I come at it from a cognitive interactionist perspective. So what that means is one, I'm really focused on the classroom and I think my some of my earlier work, it still was kind of classroom based, but as I've kind of gone on in this career a little while, it's struck me as even more important that you know it's the classroom learners that really work if we can try to make a difference for them that yeah. that would be great um, cognitive interactionist perspective means that one of the things that I think is really important is communicating in the language so not a lot of grammar drills or rote memorization but um, communicative interaction with some attention to language but um, and then I'm also interested in sort of some of the cognitive processes that happen with language learning. Mm -hmm. so. so the classroom context, mm -hmm. do you do work around the conditions under which that, that language interaction are successful? Mm -hmm. So thinking about classroom culture and trying to set the the conditions under which students can feel. I mean, it's pretty risky to talk in a, to speak in another language. Absolutely, you know, yeah. Have you done some work in those areas? Um, so it's been more looking at pedagogical activities okay. that can really make a difference. Um, so I've done a lot of work with oral corrective feedback. So is it beneficial, for example, when learners are talking in pairs or talking with a teacher to give sort of brief corrective feedback? Um, and. I would argue, and I think research would argue that yes, it is. That's one that's beneficial because you've got them communicating, but while they're talking, and maybe they make a mistake and they're corrected, that the meaning is held. They they know what they're trying to say, and they're given the uh, language forms that they need at that exact time, so that can help them um, solidify that in their in their uh, brain. So is, is there a law of diminishing returns on that? So like if somebody's correcting you every every other word or that's you? well yes, absolutely. If there's if there's constant correction, then yeah. that's that's a no-go, right? I mean that doesn't doesn't work. And so part of my research has been trying to find maybe what's the optimal amount of feedback. Are there different types of feedback that make a difference? So if you provide the correct form for them versus trying to elicit the correct form from them. So those are some of the things that I've been interested in, and that was what my original thesis was on, and then I've been expanding a bit more um, into different kind of other pedagogical areas uh, more recently. So. What kinds of areas? Um, so looking at uh, vocabulary and pronunciation and pragmatics as well, so not just a grammar, um, but what types of activities um, can help with so, for example, grammar or sorry, vocabulary acquisition, um, um, pronunciation. I've also looked um, at looking at online language learning. Yeah. Um, so that's becoming a more and more popular, both um, sort of for you know personally, some people will study, um, but also a lot of hybrid language classes, as I'm sure you know, right. uh, offering classes online can be. Um, 
beneficial, but is it really good for the learner? Yeah. And so that's something that needs we need to find out. And what are you finding with that? I mean, with the hybrid class, because then I also have a whole set of things wondering about the. You know, I know you're thinking of you better have a sip of beer. Uh, uh, Wondering about the, I know you've been doing work on apps and, mm -hmm. and language apps. So right. let's think about the hybrid classroom first. Um, so I haven't done much research in hybrid classes per se. I think that the research that has been done, though, is showing that um, there are some things that the hybrid classes are good for. Um, I think especially they're good for freeing up class time for interaction, right? Because one of the things, especially in foreign language classes in the U.S., Learners don't have a lot of exposure to the language outside of the classroom. Right. So they need to be able to use it and speak it as much as possible in order to, to acquire it. And so if you can have some maybe grammar activities or maybe even vocabulary activities online that they can do as homework, then that frees up time for them to use those forms while they're uh, communicating in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So that, I haven't done research on that specifically, uh, but I think the research is showing um, some of the things that work well in hybrid classes and, and some things that don't. How does your research when you're in the classroom function? Are you in there observing and marking different interactions or how, how is it functioning just on a, because I know your research has a quantitative and a qualitative dimension to it? Correct. Um, so yeah, I, I haven't done it recently, but especially for my PhD, and I did some work when I first came to, to MSU, I'd sit in the back of the classroom, I had a microphone on the teacher, I had a camera in the back, and would observe what was happening, make notes about different uh, linguistic forms maybe that were targeted in the, in the interaction, and um, yeah, I loved it. I love sitting in language classrooms, um, and so that's why when, when Dan asked, you, oh, where do you, where do you work, you know, and I thought, well, I do research in language classrooms, but that's not a really conducive place to sit and have a conversation. Right. So we couldn't, we couldn't be uh, chatting in the background. <laughs> right. It would be a little disruptive. Um, so I haven't done a classroom-based research study like that where I've been in the classroom and done the observations, but I did, in fact, the article that just was um, uh, one of the, the one that we published, I published with a co-author last year um, with uh, Language Learning uh, Journal, was in a... Um, English foreign language classrooms in Chile, and so I didn't actually sit in the classrooms, but we did. I did helped with the analysis and the pre-testing and post-testing and all of that. Mm -hmm. So, what about some of these apps, these language apps? I know everybody's asking. Okay, do they work? Are they effective? Can you really learn Spanish in three days or whatever they're trying to right, say? Right, right. <laughs> so that's a good question, and I mean the short answer is they can be helpful but they're not going to take you all the way to full proficiency, that's for sure. So I've done two studies, uh, one with Duolingo and one with Babbel. Um, I think a lot of people are familiar with Duolingo because it's a free program. And um, so I had a, a graduate seminar on instructed second language acquisition. And so one of the research options that I gave them was let's study Turkish for a semester and see how we do. Uh, because I thought if a group of people who are familiar with how second language acquisition works, uh, who are motivated somewhat externally because it's a you know class assignment, but also who are experienced language learners, all of us were you know had studied at least one other second language. Um, so let's see see what happens. And um, I mean the results were mixed. 
Um, we all knew more Turkish than we did starting, and I chose Turkish because I assumed it would be a language that nobody was familiar with. Uh, it's not related to most lang to other languages that some people have studied. Like it wouldn't be great to do French if people knew Spanish. Um, right. So, so we started with that, and um, some people did well. Um, and then the other thing that was interesting, so I had a graduate student who taught Turkish at MSU, and he had he administered his final exam for Turkish 101. So we could kind of measure ourselves against okay. what would be expected from a first semester Turkish class at MSU. And most of us failed. Okay. <laughs> right. So That's our scores were probably 50% to 70%. Okay. So, you know, a couple of us might have passed the class, but most people wouldn't have. And part of it is just there's not enough support. I mean, right. it's, it's, it's fun. Um, I like the gamification aspects of Duolingo especially. Um, so it's, it's helpful, but I think you have to be realistic about what you can achieve with it. Do they have those dimensions that, of, of interaction that you're interested in with, no. this, with this sort of dynamic, correct? No. There's no way to do it. It's a very right? kind of old pedagogy of this, well, based on behaviorism, um, you know, you, you repeat what is said um, or, you know, sort of grammar translation. So the, the pedagogical methods are not... Um, all that great and what some of us found very irritating about it was just that there was we could see there was so much more that could be done with it to yeah. help us learn but that's not what it gave us right um, but so I reported on that uh, project at a conference and somebody who was the um, sort of the academic liaison from Babel was there oh boy and um, now you're a consultant and we're, we're gonna have to <laughs> yeah, retain you from Babel probably <laughs> Um, so he, well, actually he wasn't at, he couldn't make it to my talk, but he got in touch with me afterwards. And so we were just talking and I shared with him my, my findings. And basically we got to talking and we devised a study that they funded, um, where, and so we just finished it. Well, it's, it's under review right now with a, with a journal. Um, but we took... We had about 50 learners of Spanish um, at MSU undergrads, so we pre-tested them at the beginning of the semester, and then we said, we'd like you to study Spanish using this app for, we were hoping about 10 minutes a day, for 12 weeks. And then we um, post-tested them at the end of the semester, because we wanted to see in a bit more controlled, sort of, you know, quasi-experimental quasi environment, how would the app fare? And so one of the things that I was really uh, insistent on was that in addition to having tests of grammar and vocabulary, which is kind of, I think, where I would expect learners to make gains because, you know, explicit grammar instruction, memorizing vocabulary, I think those apps are good for that. But there's a test called the oral proficiency interview. Um, and that is really good for, and in fact, um, I think... Um, you can get certified with that for, uh, like, you know, uh, public school teachers can use that to get certified in, in proficiency, uh, language proficiency. So because they were funding it, I said, I'd like to really use this uh, because I'm not sure that they're going to make gains in oral proficiency. And um, so they agreed. They, that's the great thing about having um, money to pay for it, as right. opposed to sometimes we have to just kind of get by as best we can, right? Um, and so 
I was surprised that actually I think about 60% improved uh, on the oral proficiency interview, which was more than I thought. Wow. And it was still pretty basic. They started off, many of them, at um, sort of a low beginner level, but they advanced up to beginner mid or maybe even a high beginner. So. I was actually more impressed than I thought I would be. Did they give you access to the data behind the app and all that yes. time spent? Yes, all so we were able to look at um, the exact amount of time that they spent, the lessons that they accessed, um, and so we did a, a regression analysis and not surprisingly, um, the biggest predictor of um, improvement was the amount of time you spent studying. Just the sheer amount or was it regularity too? Um, we, it was not regularity, it was mm. just the sheer amount. Um, the learners didn't study quite as much as we had hoped, um, <laughs> but we, you know, they they did study. We had about a 35% attrition rate, which is not bad for this type of study. Actually, some of them have been worse. So I wonder what um, their attrition rate in terms of the normal just population that is downloading the app, they think they're going to use it. I'm sure it's that would, way higher than yeah, that. that. Yes, absolutely. Because these, and we were able to pay them to compensate the participants at the end of the study as well. So okay. they had a you know financial uh, okay. incentive as well. So, um, but the one thing that we also found was that motivation was related to gains on the oral proficiency interview, but not on the vocabulary or grammar tests. So the students who were more motivated and who spent more time were the ones who made gains on the oral proficiency interview. So I think, you know, some of them make claims of, you know, learn to speak a language in five, five hours or something, right, and right. those are just yeah. ludicrous. But I think, you know, they're, they're better than nothing. And in talking with the, um, the people at Babbel, they're really dedicated to their goal is like everybody studying a language. That's and cool. That's good. I was able to go to their headquarters and, and presented some of the findings, and it was really impressive. Mm -hmm. um, now, it's a subscription-based one, so it's not free like Duolingo, but I think because of that, the pedagogy is a bit better. Yeah, and you can imagine um, them, them developing new uh, modes of, of instruction, but also, I would imagine, integrating artificial intelligence and things like that into mm -hmm. the space where where potentially it could get more interactive, but that also is going to lead to all kinds of other important questions that we'll have to research. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and that's the one thing, you know, as a cognitive interactionist, the biggest downside, I think, of these apps is they don't give you the opportunity to really communicate with somebody. They sort of have, you know, some of these contrived role plays. Babbel's a bit more authentic than Duolingo. But in order to be able to, you know, use a language to communicate, you have to practice right. using it, and so that's one of those things that the apps really um, lack. But there are other programs um, that do offer that. You can. There's a. Um, I know the Spanish department uses one called Talk Abroad, where you can schedule 30 minutes to talk with an uh, yeah. a, um, uh, a first language speaker. Um, italki is another one. So there's a lot of these where you can, you know, sign up and talk with somebody in Chile or Spain or China. So I'm just, I marvel at what's available now to learners yeah. compared to what, when I was studying language right. and couldn't even lay my hands on a French textbook when I wanted to study French. Um, wow. So it's, it's really amazing. Yeah. And I, I could totally see a dimension of an app like that, that would integrate that kind of social dimension of talking across cultures mm -hmm. and having that be a feature that you could say, okay, click on a button, now we're going to connect you with somebody and figure mm -hmm. out how to have that conversation. There's obviously challenges with that as well, I'm sure, but, right. but 
the dynamic nature of the technology is really interesting and how it's evolving so quickly. Yeah. One of the things we've been talking a lot about in the college and at the university is how these technologies are transforming education and how we need to really be thinking intentionally about how that happens. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that's really important. And one of my frustrations with that type of research in our field is often there the research studies are focusing purely on the technology and the technology changes so fast that by the time it's published technology has moved on but if you can look at the sort of pedagogical principles behind it then it doesn't matter so much this the technological specifics but you're looking more at the pedagogical the larger pedagogical implications yeah which i think is really important i agree so one of the things we've emphasized on the podcast and something that's been really important to my own thinking about leadership and about education and use of technology and other forms of pedagogy and research is self-reflection, practices of self-reflection, practices of intentionality. Do you, do, you have, have you, do you have sort of practices that you normally undertake of self-reflection, um, be it a kind of writing practice or maybe... Go, go for walks, or do you, do you have that into your modes of operating? I wouldn't say that I have something sort of built in on a regular basis, but what I find is um, interacting with colleagues in, in the SLS program, interacting with colleagues uh, from different universities, it's those conversations that I have where I sort of stick my head up above my foxhole, right, and yeah. see what else is going on in the world that then cause me to stop and think and kind of see how some of those ideas re relate to my own work. And so I think it's been much more serendipitous uh, than, than intentional, I think. It's good to see that you're a cognitive interactionalist in your own engagement with your own, your own research. That's good to know. You, you live that out in, in reality. I think it's also one of the things that we've been thinking a lot about is, on the one hand, how important those interactions are with colleagues. On the other hand, what's the impact of, on, the, on, on the earth of flying everyone to one location and having these conferences, which clearly are important. Yeah, and and you know those are some of the things that we've been we've been thinking a lot about. Yeah. as well. Yeah, no, that that's true. That's important. Um, yeah, it's it's hard to know. I did a, a teacher interview study in Chile as well. I have a colleague uh, in Chile that I work with, and he had uh, research money from a grant to fly me down there and to do this. And I saw, I sort of thought, mm, can I really justify this? We could do the interviews via Zoom, and um, but. Who am I to say no to a, a trip to Chile, right? So I went down, and I was really struck with with how much being there and just getting a feel for the place and interacting um, with the teachers there. I I wouldn't have gotten the same um, information, the same feel from Zoom interviews, and so I think that our paper was much better because of because we were there. So. It's it's hard to know though because yeah. you know it's not um, it certainly has an impact all the travel that we do um, but I think there is something to be said for the synergy that um, happens when you're in the same place 
as people, you can see the environment that they're in, which is kind of why you're doing right, this, right? right exactly. Um, so, yeah. It's, I think thinking about the, be, just being intentional about how we're doing this. It, it's, I, I appreciate the fact that you thought, okay, well, is this going to add value to the work that I'm mm -hmm. doing? Makes sense. You're going to go down there. Yes, the experience is going to be richer. You're going to have a more textured understanding of what's, what's going mm -hmm. on. And then there are some contexts in which that might not be necessary right. and we need to make uh, right. other decisions. But the important thing from my perspective is that we are intentional about thinking those things through mm -hmm. as we move yeah. forward. Yeah. So where are the barriers? Where, where, what are the bar what's holding you back? <laughs> um, well, I was, I was told this question might be coming. Yes. So It's always dangerous um, for the dean to ask the <laughs> what's holding you back question on a podcast, but that's what we're doing. Uh, so I, one of the things, actually, I feel very fortunate uh, to be in the program that I'm in. I think we have excellent faculty, excellent students. I think we have great support from the college. And so in that regard, I feel, uh, yeah, like I said, really fortunate to be able to not have to worry about a lot of structural issues, but we can just kind of get on with our work and do it. Um, I guess what I would say is the biggest barriers to what I'd like to, like to see happen with language instruction in this country is the attitudes towards foreign languages, towards internationalization. Um, you know, language enrollments, foreign language enrollments are dropping in this country. Um, there's, I think there's unfortunately less value seen on um, intercultural awareness and so these are the things that I think are really those are the barriers that I see um, to what to what my overall vision is in terms of my research which is to make language instruction better and more successful for learners inside the classroom and these kinds of systemic issues are hard to address yeah so um, well, it's interesting. The I appreciate the the point that you're making about the structural issues at the university, but I think we're we're also thinking through. Okay, what does a 21st century research land grant research university need to be? And mm -hmm. part of that has to be a deep understanding of language and culture embedded in all the activities that we undertake, from you know the research side to the teaching side mm -hmm. and I think in, until we come to a deeper under, recognition of that and also find ways to build the kind of work that you're doing into the work that our scientists are doing, our social scientists are doing out there in these cultures and in globally or, or even locally where the cultures are different. Right to you know be really engaged with with people at at a at a level where trust is developed and where the work can really be enhanced by the interaction that yeah. happens yeah yeah no that's important so you know it's a challenge that we're facing when we're within the language programs when we have to fight this sort of tendency to say well okay english is ubiquitous we can do what we want. We, we think we can do what we want with this language, but we realize that we really can't have the kind of impact, the, the deep level of engagement that we want if we just have one language. Right, right. Yeah, 
English is not spoken everywhere. Right. I mean, a lot of people do speak English, and it's amazing all the places you can go and get by with English. But one, you know, you can't go everywhere. And two, I think there's just something that uh, is appreciated when, even if you don't speak the language fluently, when you make the, you show an interest in somebody's language and you're making the effort to engage with that, I think that goes a long way uh, in many cases to creating goodwill and I think it's something that we're, um, that as a country are not, not very good at. And I'm kind of pessimistic that it's going to improve anytime soon, unfortunately. I hate to end on such a <laughs> negative note. I, I, I can understand. I think it's well-earned it's well earned pessimism. But I still have some sense that we, we need to advocate for. And also, I think there's actual important data to show that having second language in your capacity is an advantage, not only socially, but also just cognitively in Absolutely. terms of, of your yeah. development. Yeah. Yeah, no, there are a lot of advantages for, you know, bilingualism, and I think it's important to, you know, to push those, and so not to end on a pessimistic note, I think that, um, you know, a lot of the students who are in our language classes are really committed, and they're um, amazing, and so I think making sure that they have the best pedagogic experience that they can that's going to really set them up for success, I think is really important. So um, that, I think... When I'm thinking about things globally and what sort of my when I have time to reflect or opportunity to reflect, um, those are the kinds of things that I really hope my my research is doing is kind of helping um, because that's how I didn't have the advantage of growing up in a multilingual context. I didn't grow up bilingual. I had to learn Spanish through blood, sweat, and tears in you know junior high, high school, and um, you know there's a lot of people in this country, especially who it's the same thing, and I would like it to be a little bit easier for them than it was for me. Well, I'm really grateful for the work that you're doing to make it easier for our students here at MSU and more broadly with the research that you're doing to make uh, learning a second language easier, more effective, and more transformative, which we know it is for everyone. So thanks, Sean, for being on the podcast. Thank you. A big thank you to everyone involved with this podcast, including our technical producer, Dan Trago, our marketing director and producer, Ryan Kilcoyne, and our interns, Dante Smith and Anya Delane. You can access every episode of the Liberal Arts Endeavor podcast online at go.cal.msu.edu forward slash podcast. The opinions expressed on this program do not reflect official entities of Michigan State University. See you next time on Liberal Arts Endeavor.